from the Bardic College. In 1985, Unearthed Arcana was released for AD&D First Edition. This supplement introduced the Barbarian, who hated magic so much that they got experience points for breaking magic items. You know, those really rare magic items that you couldn't purchase or really make on your own. Just broken for the Barbarian's experience points, which they didn't share with you at all. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is like a childhood friend, so why not mercilessly nitpick it while forgetting to tell them how much we love them? <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became the head gnome. And I'm Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew. I've been gaming since roughly 1985. And in addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where we'll be looking at Appendix N, both what it was and what it could be in the future. And then we'll have some recommendations of D&D related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. So now let's jump into that campaign journal, Ange. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So my most recent session went much better than the previous one. Just as a flashback, my players began their ocean journey going from Sharn to Stormreach. And the opening of that session was a little bit of a struggle because I wasn't quite sure how to run the travel montage while still giving them agency and all that. But this past session went much better. Yay. I was better prepared to make things interesting on the ship before getting into a more traditional series of encounters. To open, I asked each player to explain how their character was keeping from being bored out of their mind stuck on a ship <laughs> during a long journey. I mean, this is a journey that's supposed to take about four weeks. Oh, yeah. I had each of them also describe a short scene between themselves and one of the other PCs because I kind of wanted to foster that Hey, these are your companions. Let's start building some relationships here. Yeah, I, I like that connecting things like that. That's cool. Yeah. It's like I love doing that in, in most games, and very often I'll build it into session zero. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this one, I like the, the, the way the campaign's set up. It's like they didn't really know each other coming into it. So I kind of wanted to have something partway through to be like, okay, mm -hmm. how are you guys getting along? For the most part, the keeping busy part was a mix of helping out the crew and the ship or throwing themselves into their own training and studies. Other than Rena, the changeling sorceress who treated it as a pleasure cruise and partied and gambled with the crew at night. <laughs> Two of the other PCs also got involved in some gambling. One, Vandrith, the half-elf paladin of glory, likes a challenge, so he wanted to get into the gambling. And Sax, the drow cleric, got basically kind of dragged into the gambling because he was honestly trying to learn how to help the crew. And they've kind of fondly adopted him because he's earnestly <laughs> trying to help them. Now, the opposite of Sax was Perrin, the Elfblade singer. And Bard, player, really likes multiclassing. <laughs> he was also trying to learn how to ship works, but as a spoiled academic rich kid was really annoying about it. So he got put to work by the ship's no-nonsense no -nonsense bosun. Uh, Perrin was smart enough to realize what was happening, but stubborn enough to keep trying to succeed. He still whined about it the whole time, 
<laughs> but, you know, he did learn some things. The socialization scenes between the PCs were also nice. Uh, my favorite ended up being between Cargill, the goblin artificer, and Rena, the changeling sorceress. Cargill is a young adult goblin, so technically he's only about 13 years old. Rena is actually also quite young. I think we decided she's like 19. Uh, but the persona she wears is a middle-aged motherly woman. Uh, she really liked in um, uh, the book about monsters. It has a whole bunch of information about races. Oh, uh, Monsters of the Multiverse. Yeah, Monsters of the Multiverse. There's a little blurb in there about changelings, about how changelings can have a family persona that is handed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And Rena is technically her family's persona. And she's wearing it now that she is an adult and out adventuring. But the Rena she's presenting as is a motherly, plump, middle-aged woman who just loves everybody and has <laughs> cookies for everyone. But she's actually a 19-year-old party girl. Mm -hmm. So no one knows in character that she's a changeling. So it was kind of funny having Cargill go to her asking questions and completely botching an insight role to pick up the oddities in her behavior and basically them settling into this weird, not quite motherly child relationship. <laughs> I love the whole changeling, um, how they kind of live in their alternate personalities that they create. That's that a really neat aspect of that. It's, it's been really fun so far. We do have plans for something to happen where the rest of the group will find out she's a changeling. Mm -hmm. There was an incident early in the game where she actually changed, but people didn't either catch it or just assumed it was an illusion, and <laughs> nobody really, like, pushed on it. Except for Perrin, who was like, are we just going to ignore this? Okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess we're just going to ignore this. The next part of the game had a storm sweeping in, just as they could see the dangerous Shargon's teeth in the distance. <laughs> I treated the storm as a skill challenge where their successes would assist the crew in keeping the ship safe, but honestly, the players succeeded so spectacularly at their roles, they made it through the storm and night just fine. The players were buying into it and doing everything they could to help, and me as the GM, I'm sitting here like, there is nothing exciting happening about this storm because I don't <laughs> think anyone has rolled lower than a 16. <laughs> At dawn, they could see how very close the ship had been pushed to Shargon's teeth. Mm -hmm. And they could also see the wreckage of another ship in the water and the husk of it beached on a, a small island nearby. I think the, the folks who got the highest perception checks could also make out that there were people on the island. So there were survivors. Mm -hmm. Now, thankfully, most of my players were instantly pushing to go help. I always get super frustrated at players who deliberately push back at the heroic plot hooks I put in front of them. <laughs> oh, look, there's people in need of help. Yep, I'm going to go over here. And it's like, okay, you're doing that on purpose? Which is really annoying. Don't be a jerk. The captain asked the adventurers, both the PCs and the six NPCs, to go over, since he was worried this could be a trap, and he wanted seasoned fighters to go over rather than just his crewmen. Now... Because I knew I, want, I wanted to have a big beach battle, and I knew that, narratively speaking, it would make sense to have the other six adventurers there, but I really did not want to run a combat yeah. where I was running six NPCs as well as all of the adversaries that would be needed to make a challenging encounter for 12 adventurers. So I told my players up front, I'm like, look. The other adventures are here. They're on the other side of the beach from you. 
we're going to handle their side of things narratively. You guys focus on your part. You know, it's all narrative. I just need you to do this because it's easier. Mm -hmm. Even then, I still had a couple of players being like, I check over and make sure the other group, do they need help? And I'm like, no, no, they, they don't need help. Nope, they're like, fine. I appreciate you leaning into the fiction <laughs> here, but they're fine. They don't need help. They've got it under control. In the end, the, the fight had the effect I wanted to, with the survivors cowering as the PCs engaged the pirates. Oh, I, I forgot that part. Basically, the survivors were being threatened by pirates. Mm -hmm. I should have said that. I got too excited <laughs> and skipped past it. So the PCs engaged with the pirates as the survivors were cowering there. The wreckage of the ship all around them on the beach. My pirates couldn't roll to literally save their lives. <laughs> I think they hit Cargill once, but other than that, and actually, um, Parrot successfully used sleep and put several of the kobolds that were part of the pirates to sleep, and they were just out of the fight immediately, gone forever until they were woken up and tied up. <laughs> <sighs> As soon as the fight was over, the leaders of the survivors ran over and begged for the players to help them because the pirate leaders had taken two of the children hostage and taken their their treasure that they had been able to salvage from the ship, which is what the survivors needed to set themselves up in Stormreach once they arrived. And again, thankfully, my players were immediately like, yes, we're going to go help them. <laughs> like nobody pushed back against that. They immediately like, OK, when, where are we going? The little island had like an obvious little cave on it and all of that. So they all went over there where they immediately got attacked by these large bear crab monstrosities. I think they're called bear mitt crabs, which Jared helped me find. Thank you very much. They were wonderful. That fight was a lot tougher and actually pushed them a little harder to their limits. And mm -hmm. it didn't take anybody down, but there was definitely a few touch and go moments for them there. A lot better than Unlucky Pirates. Yeah, I mean, it was it was like they, they leaned into the pirate fight like I expected, but the bear mitt crab fight was a bit more of the challenge I was hoping it would be. <laughs> the bear crabs also um, help feed into a plot line I'm starting to build up for Manic, the human druid, who is a member of House Vidalis, which is the animal breeding house. Uh, and they have a history of people having done bad things, doing mage breeding and creating monstrosities. And it's against the law. And the only reason the house still exists is they vowed to the other houses they would never do that again. So, of course, it's happening again. <laughs> there is one more fight inside the cave, but it was getting late by the time they had finished the bear mitt crabs. So we have them do a quick scouting of the cave and then end the session to pick back up with them going into the cave to fight the pirate leaders and rescue the kids. I really like, as you're describing this, how you work in and out with the... It doesn't have to be like deep lore dive all the time, but there's just enough things touching here and there that remind you that it's an Eberron game. And I really like how you're doing that. This kind of ties into last recording. You were talking about the pirates and them not being able to hit worth anything and also the skill check. And I really like that you kind of showed them what would have happened if they failed by showing them the shipwreck and how close they were to the rocks. I think that's a neat technique there. How would you characterize how they felt about that fight with the pirates, even though, you know, it was it, it kind of went their way? 
from what I picked up from the way they reacted to it, none of them took it like as a cakewalk. Mm -hmm. None of them were like, oh, this isn't a challenge at all. They leaned into it like it was actually a challenge. And they they very carefully made sure they weren't using any dangerous spells that could have hurt the civilians, Mm -hmm. which I appreciated. But I do think they realized by the end of it that the pirates weren't really as much of a threat (laughs) as they had looked in the beginning. They just couldn't roll the hit. Not to mention, Perrin is a blade singer, and this not only gives him a good AC when his blade song is on, he also has access to shield. <laughs> so he just would like, you know, okay, he actually rolled high enough to hit you. No, he didn't shield. <laughs> okay. And and uh, Vandrith is a paladin, so they both have really high ACs. And honestly, Cargill's AC is pretty high because he's basically the Tony Stark of goblins. <laughs> he's the armorer artificer. So it's like, uh, Perrin is really squishy if you actually hit him because he's a wizard and he doesn't have that many hit points, but it's really hard to hit him. <laughs> so how about your campaign, Jared? All right. Well, um, as we've established before, Angie's in this one, so feel free to jump in whenever you have something to say here. Oddly enough, my session also involved a ship, although that ship wasn't going anywhere. I was coming off of being sick, so I was very scatterbrained. And I think when we were actually in the middle of scenes, we were fine. But between scenes, I was having a really hard time staying on topic. (laughs) And I mean, part of that was just the the way I felt last week. I I didn't feel terrible. I just felt kind of tired and off and just spacey. It wasn't just you. We were down a player. Mm -hmm. And I think other folks were also dealing with some... Just general stress and, you know, just being tired and all of that. But I enjoyed the session. I didn't find it too scattered. Yeah, I think, I mean, like I said, when we were actually on, I think we got a lot of good, solid gaming in. It was just kind of that in between, like, come back from break and break turns into a 45 minute break instead of a 10 minute one. (laughs) Yeah, we were down a player. And the first thing that we were doing was having everyone spend their downtime. I had mentioned this, you know, in some of the previous ones where I do the the Midgard rule where since we were off for two weeks, you guys had 28 days worth of downtime to spend. Sometimes it's not easy to spend all of that. I believe we have a couple people working on on new languages now. Our cleric is still gathering up some favors from the religious community because he's hoping to uh, get granted a plot of land to build his own temple. So we will see where that goes in the future. I kind of like it because downtime is a little bit of a wish list for what you want to do next. If you can find downtime that really kind of speaks to you. So like in Brandon's case, I know that he's big into wanting to build up the faith of his character and build a community around some of the dwarves in the city. So that's, you know, that's a reminder to me to make sure that to keep that as part of the campaign. I have to sit down and figure out what Kazina really wants to work out. One of the issues I have with the downtime is a lot of it ends up being based on social roles. Oh, yeah. And Kazina is just awkward in the form of a tiefling. Mm -hmm. She has no charisma. (laughs) He doesn't know how to persuade people. So I got to figure out something that works for her. Well, just not shooting her in the foot every time I need to roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once we got going again, we had Ambassador Darius, which is the kobold that works for Yurazaza and is the contact for the adventurers. He interacted with the group and they kind of gave him their wishes for, you know, 
can we get some extra people to help out for this patrol to find, you know, what's happening with the military people that are getting lost? Brandon's dwarf asked about being able to get some official help excavating the hidden temple that was recently found, and Ambassador Darius set up all of that for everybody, and also was very coy about smugglers when Kazina mentioned that <laughs> smugglers might be worried about the cult of Nethus using their uh, resources. Of course, he was like, what smugglers? I don't see any evidence that you're bringing me up smugglers. I'm sure they could theoretically exist, but... I don't see any of them right now. <laughs> so we touched base with those, and I got to play the Horologist, which is a character that I've been wanting to play for a while, which is one of Kazina's contacts. It's the Gearforge that runs the smuggling operation. The Horologist is someone that works on watches. That's why I picked that name for a Gearforge smuggler. I just like being able to play a different NPC once in a while. And what was interesting is not only did Kazina check in with the horologist to say, yes, we're going to be looking into your problems and seeing if the cult is using your smuggling caves. That also gave them the opportunity to get some gear from the horologist, which was kind of neat. So they got a smuggling rowboat that had some fancy paint job on it to make it a little bit easier to row out to a ship in the middle of the night. So I like how that just kind of came up naturally because I didn't have that plan beforehand. It just kind of made sense as the scene unfolded. He was also a really cool NPC. I love the way you described him. You'd almost expect to find <laughs> barnacles on him. They have like a patina because they're like next to the uh, salt water and everything. So I, I kind of like that. I've noticed that a lot of Gearforges that I introduced, I go over into how gilded they are and shiny. So I kind of wanted to go the opposite direction this time. One of the things that they did, because the mission that they picked was to go out to the ship that is anchored off the coast, which is serving as a prison ship where the paladins of Baal are interrogating underpriests that they had kidnapped. Everyone kind of wanted to look at the place during the daytime and see if they could see anything. So I tried out this thing where I would have everybody make a perception check to see a literal thing and then an investigation check to see if something clicked. As they were, you know, looking at those things that they were investigating, Brandon's dwarf has a ridiculous perception. <laughs> so we asked him what his dwarf eyes could see, and <laughs> he managed to basically see how many people were on the deck of the ship and get an idea for, you know, when they would swap out their different watches. I kind of want to play with that idea a little bit more of doing the perception followed up with the investigation. I, I mean, I like it when players do a player-driven skill when people ask what can i find out can i use this and saying yes or no but i also kind of like that idea that you get raw data from perception but you something else would follow that up to like analyze that data so they took the smuggler outfitted rowboat to find the prison ship and they made the group check to get to the ship without getting detected and that part was almost okay i seem to recall only Kazina made her sneak check Yes. Well, because we did the group check to actually row out to the ship, but it was a success, but not a total success. So there was a chance that the the guardian Drake that was swimming around the waters could find the PCs before they reached the boat. So then we had another group check for stealth and clankety clank uh, dwarf cleric did not manage to, uh, <laughs> to stay too stealthy, at which point. The Coral Drake popped up out of the water and <laughs> a fight commenced. 
Now, the funny thing was, Eileen asked me, is this going to be a nightmare creature based on the image that was on the token? I was like, no, it's not a nightmare creature. And then I immediately reread the description and I was like, I'm sorry. No, it is a nightmare creature. <laughs> it's just nightmare fuel. Sorry. <laughs> yes, this is definitely nightmare fuel because coral drakes, they're not pretty dragons. <laughs> and on top of that, they have one of the weirdest breath weapons where they essentially breathe out a cone of little bitey seahorses. <laughs> They spit babies at you. Yes. <laughs> Bitey babies. Yes. It is completely bizarre, and I kind of love it. So they got into the fight with the Coral Drake. I had it in my head that once it hit 50% of its hit points, it was going to skedaddle and alert the ship, because it's acting as a guard. If it can take people out easily, it will, but otherwise it's going to go alert the ship. So it tries to take off at 50% of its hit points. Much as happens often whenever I have a creature try and escape when it's bloodied, everybody took their uh, shots at it and it did not make it back to the ship. Which is good because I kind of didn't want to negate the fact that they made their group check to get to the ship stealthily. I didn't feel that bad having the Coral Drake find them, but they did make that group check to get to the ship without the ship detecting them. So I was kind of glad that they managed to get rid of this uh, Coral Drake. One of the things that was interesting is that we are trying out a few of the one D&D rules. You know, everybody's got their extra feats and we're using the D20 rules. We are definitely not using the uh, the crit <laughs> thing because that's just wrong. No, Ivy definitely got to roll crit damage on her uh, scorching rays. Yeah, and that's what I was going to bring up. One of the reasons that the Coral Drake went down so horribly is that our sorcerer managed to crit on two separate <laughs> scorching rays, <laughs> which not only was very impressive as far as uh, damaging the Coral Drake, but because of how the inspiration is working, we have like a full crew, like everybody has inspiration now because there were so many 20s happening and nobody's taking a long rest. So they are going into this uh, ship with inspiration on everybody. Yeah, I think we even had, because of the, the 20s that were rolled, we actually won. We got we got Marin a, an inspiration, even though the player wasn't there. And we technically had an extra to hand out if everyone hadn't already had inspiration. Yeah, and that was the thing. I, I, it's another thing that's in the one D&D rules, as they expressly say, if you get inspiration... And you already have inspiration. You can give it to somebody else in the party. So our party is stacked with inspiration. And I'm definitely going to remind all of you that that goes away when you take a long rest. So once you get on the ship, don't be shy about using it. Yep, absolutely <laughs> not going to be shy about using it. This was also the first session that we were using the Monstrous Companion from the MCDM uh, Beast Heart Supplement, which was our little Null Child, the Void Dragon Hatchling that is bonded to our uh, Sorcerer's Soul. <laughs> we got to give him a name. Well, he's going by Null Child right now, so... Yeah, but he needs a better name. He, he likes titles. <laughs> he's very grandiose like that. <laughs> yeah, but he's the size of a puppy right now. That's true. Combat did not last long enough that there was a big problem with him building up. Uh, basically, the mechanics for the Monstrous Companion is every round you roll a d4 and you add one for each opponent. And if their fury gets over 10, there's a chance that they will just kind of lash out at whoever's closest to them. This fight did not last long enough that we had to worry about his fury. He was only moderately furious. <laughs> so after the uh, Coral Drake went down, everybody rode back out to the back of the boat and they climbed onto the back of the ship. 
they're all on the deck of the ship. They got a good look at the people that are on the ship. So they have seen a plate armored dragonborn knight of Baal and two kobolds who are using wyvern stingers as weapons. So this will be interesting. We kind of ended sort of on a cliffhanger. So next time around, we can jump straight in here. I don't know if they're going to be stealthy and sneak by them. I have a feeling no. No. <laughs> Given our, uh, our our dwarf cleric. but Well, even if we didn't have a dwarf cleric in a can, we have Marin. Yes. And Marin, even when he can sneak, is not inclined to do so. <laughs> also, it's worth mentioning, I am running my game in Midgard, the Kobold Press setting. So when I say ball, I don't mean B-H- A-A-L from the Forgotten Realms. It's B-A apostrophe A-L, which has some historical connections to real world mythologies and all of that. Regardless, the order that has kidnapped the rest of these priests is all about worshiping a god that burns things to purify them. And they're trying to find these cultists of Nethus, who may or may not be using the smugglers caves, and they're basically trying to get a confession out of any clerics that do not worship gods that are native to the Marodi Empire. They're not very tolerant. They are not. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Today in the Dungeon Master's Workshop, we're going to look at Appendix N. Not just the list of books that inspired the original creators of the game that was included in AD&D First Edition Dungeon Master's Guide, but as a concept. What is the fantasy media that influences our games, and where do we go for our tropes? Where do we go to mine those? So, Jared, how do you feel about the traditional original Appendix N list? So, I think there's a lot of valuable insight into what influenced the original designers of the game when you look at Appendix N. But I also think it's very much a snapshot of both what was available and what appealed to a subset of the population at a certain point in history. A lot of the material is pulp action stories that was marketed right for young men about the age that uh, Gygax was at that time. I also think the inspirational source material in the D&D basic set from 81 is worth looking at because it's a similar time frame, but it feels a little bit broader in some of the interests that it pulled in. That one actually mentions things that didn't make it into the appendix end, but were probably a little bit more well known to general audiences like the Wizard of Oz and stories like that. The AD&D list leans heavy into like the two-fisted gritty action type things, but the basic set list brings in things like C.S. Lewis and Lewis Carroll, L. Frank Baum, Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's just a wider net. I also think the other thing that is interesting is when you look at the nonfiction recommendations, a lot of the mythology and folklore books that were considered scholarly at the time were very much from a very specific Western European viewpoint. I agree that Appendix N, it's an interesting snapshot of what was available and influential on the people originally making D&D. It's interesting to see where some of that inspiration came from, but to be completely Completely honest, even by the time I was starting to play in the mid 80s, I don't think many of those books proved to be influential over me at all, except maybe the Tolkien books. It's definitely a valuable insight into what was inspiring the creators and what led to the creation of the game, but many of those books are for a very different audience than I would have been part of. Yeah. Now, have you read any of the books and sources from Appendix N? 
Yes. So from the DMG appendix N, I've read Three Hearts and Three Lions and The Broken Sword by Paul Anderson. Uh, a lot of Howard's Conan stories, all of Fritz Leiber's Baffer and Grey Mauser stories. I've read a lot of Lovecraft stories, uh, Fred Saberhagen's Book of Swords, and The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings multiple times, like every few years I go through those. And then from that basic set inspirational list, I've let, read a Wizard of Earthsea, Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, Robert Asprin's Myth Series, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and a crap ton of Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Fern. And there's a crap ton of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And also Bullfinch's Mythology. Now, what about you, Ange? So my father was a huge fan of Tolkien's work. I have very <laughs> fond of memories of him reading The Hobbit to my brother and I. It was honestly the last book I remember him sitting down you know, basically him sitting on the couch with the book and us curled up against him, mm -hmm. you know, leaning there, listening as he was reading it aloud to us. He enthusiastically showed us the Hobbit cartoon and the various cartoon <laughs> fragments of the Lord of the Rings available in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. There was even a theater in the round performance of the Hobbit I can remember him taking <laughs> the whole family to. There was absolutely no hope for me to become anything else but the nerd I am today from <laughs> my father sharing his love of Tolkien along with other fantasy and science fiction, you know, and that <laughs> love pushed me to look for more. Mm -hmm. He actually had a pretty extensive fantasy and science fiction collection of books that I rated quite often. So I had read some Andre Norton before I started gaming. But to be completely honest, I probably gravitated a bit more towards the classic science fiction over the classic fantasy he had available. I did read a lot more modern fantasy. I think I'll mention this later, but I did devour the Dragon Riders of Pern when I got into it. Now, after I got into D&D, all of the dudes I was playing with would go on and on about how awesome Elric was. So I did try and read more Cox books back in the 80s, and I was not impressed. I can see why they're inspirational, and personally, I don't find a depressed, morose, <laughs> misanthropic anti-hero to be even remotely interesting. <laughs> not to mention pretty much any other character in the book, especially the women, were just cardboard cutouts or objects. No shame to anyone who has enjoyed those books, but I was definitely not part of the target audience. I've never made it all the way through an Elric book either. I made it through them. I think I made it through the first two and then was just like, oh, this guy's a jerk. I don't care anymore. More recently, I was invited on to the very lovely Appendix N Book Club podcast where they basically take the books from Appendix N and have somebody on that they discuss one of the books with. It's a fantastic show. I highly recommend it. Give it a listen. I was on an episode where we discussed Fritz Lieber's Swords of Ice and Magic. Swords and Ice Magic, sorry. I had never gotten into the Fofford and Grey Mouser books as a younger person, and I probably wouldn't have enjoyed them as much if I had found them. I definitely enjoyed the book, but it's a product of a different age. I mean, holy sexism, Batman. <laughs> and like, I can see the glimmers in there. I know why people love those characters. I know why people love their adventures, but wow. And, and the funny thing is, you are absolutely right, but I also have a, a soft spot for those books, and they are definitely sexist. I would not by any means want anyone not to realize that, but they also feel very much to me like these two act like what D&D &D adventurers to me act like, 
you know, more so than a lot of fantasy characters. One of the things we talked about in that episode of Appendix N podcast was they didn't say that book was worse on the sexism than some of the earlier books. But one of the things that we talked about is at that time in Fritz Lieber's life, he was dealing with some stuff (laughs) in relation to, I believe his wife had passed away Mm -hmm. and he was just kind of dealing with some stuff and just channeling it into some of those stories. And there's some questionable things done with female characters in there. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't, isn't that like where they go to the mountain to uh, hook up with the woman at Sky Dock? Yeah. There's, there's a few different things in there. Like the first half of the book is a bunch of short stories. And there is a very questionable description of a naked woman that appears in their room for some inexplicable reason. And then there's the second half of the book is a single story, which does involve going up on a mountain and just some just some questionable. Like, it, it, I enjoyed the story, but you definitely, as a modern reader, you have to take a step back and like maybe not excuse the sexism but at least understand that it was a different time and place it probably will not surprise you to find that there was another story where they kind of do the same thing except they go underwater, <laughs> <laughs> so, underwater <laughs> so anyway now I, w- I was not aware of the basic sets inspiration list mm. um but i did read a lot more of those the chronicles of narnia are something i found after my exposure to the hobbit and I read those many, many times. And as I said earlier, I devoured the Dragon Riders of Pern. Mm-hmm. We were about to go on a family vacation when I was 12 years old and I was whining that I didn't <laughs> have anything to read on the car ride there. So my dad handed me the science fiction book club omnibus version of the three main original Dragon Riders of Pern book. I mean, this thing was probably about three inches thick. Yep, I had that. I devoured that book. I read that book so many times, I destroyed it. And then I destroyed the second version of the omnibus my dad got. (laughs) My dad still gives me grief over that. (laughs) Now, Appendix N is entirely composed of books and some historical references to mythology and stuff like that. But what other media do you think belongs on an Appendix N list? So I'm going to be short and sweet because I know you have feelings on this. (laughs) But I think... Now you really need to look at video games, comics, movies. Honestly, I think even at the time that AD&D came out in first edition, there really should have been more movies on that list because those were definitely making their way into the subconscious of anybody that was enjoying fantasy by that point in time. Well, there wasn't a lot out at the time the original Appendix N was compiled. There still was stuff out there. No. There were no video games, but there was a fair amount of B-movie schlocky stuff and, <laughs> you know, a lot of science fiction. And there was some stuff that could be considered fantasy. The occasional King Arthur movie or Robin Hood story. Definitely those had influences on fantasy gaming. Mm-hmm. Now, several things that probably should have gotten a nod were overlooked for being too girly. For example, while it is mentioned in the basic set, The Wizard of Oz. Mm. While it isn't necessarily an exact correlation, there is a lot to be said about the nature of the party and the quest in Dorothy's tale. Oh, yeah. In addition, all of the original Disney Princess movies, they did a lot to set the tone for what a fairy tale fantasy could be. I mean, even if you just look at the bad guys, 
the evil witch in Snow White, or Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. And that's all just for the original Appendix N. There is way more when we start talking about more modern stuff. Mm -hmm. In some ways, the influx of fantasy in other media has been steadily building up to a landslide of content. It all started in the 70s, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about video games in our next section and how they're a huge force, kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak, on D&D and RPGs. Oh, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is, for as far as Sleeping Beauty goes, the image of Maleficent turning into the giant black dragon, if that doesn't burn its way into your head when you're thinking of fantasy images, I don't know what would. Oh my god, yes. So, what do you think people would add to their Appendix N of today? You know, you all obviously have multiple vectors, you have multimedia properties, so some of these things that I'm going to mention, they are almost all immediately books, TV series, video games, all at one time. It would be impossible not to mention The Witcher at this point in time, because mm -hmm. that's a huge... And again, like I said, it's a video game. It's a Netflix series. It's a series of books. There's comic books. Like, you cannot escape The Witcher as a, as a fantasy content inspiration there. A Song of Ice and Fire, I mean, that's been going now for who knows how long. And once again, there's a new television series going on and you have dragons and people killing each other with swords and there's an rpg of it out there yes there is another big one dragon age which is interesting because of the lineage that bioware brought to dragon age to begin with but just as its own setting and kind of um i believe they even said that they intentionally wanted to make it feel like a blend of song of ice and fire and lord of the rings kind of at the same time and it is kind of an interesting mix of those two influences but yeah it's really hard to disentangle what rpg streaming has done for people's fantasy expectations because now people are seeing people play rpgs and that is what's influencing what they put into their rpgs <laughs> bringing a lot of people oh to yeah the hobby. definitely um there's i mean there's people that really have not as engaged in as much fantasy media as maybe people like we you know we did when we were younger but they have seen streaming shows and they get into fantasy specifically directly from watching a streaming show about a fantasy role-playing game so here's where i get to talk about how much of our modern appendix n would be the result of things that were inspired directly <laughs> by tnd as jared mentioned modern rpg streaming is of course a thing that wouldn't exist <laughs> without DD having existed first but I really want to talk about video games. From their inception, video games have been trying to emulate D&D. Many of the early text-based computer games were essentially dungeon crawls of a sort. You had to know the right word to type in to get to the next room, but it was still a dungeon crawl. And then there was Atari's adventure game, which was basically, I mean, like, I have so many fond memories of those Atari games. <laughs> but Adventure had you exploring a dungeon to try and find the treasure and maybe fight a dragon. Then there's Gauntlet. Gauntlet in the arcades would have never existed without D&D &D first. I mean, Red Warrior needs food badly. <laughs> Don't shoot food. In the 90s, video games start getting more sophisticated, both in graphics and story. And it is truly hard to understate how influential Baldur's Gate series is on video games. Almost every single fantasy game afterwards owes a nod of respect towards that series. Certainly Dragon Age, The Witcher, Skyrim. None of these games would exist without the foundation that Baldur's Gate laid, 
which was a game based <laughs> on D and D. You know, it's it's like all those '90s D and D games that they translated into video games are just absolutely foundational for the games we have today. We also can't ignore the influence of movies, and now the premium television has on our gaming. Star Wars did as much to inform me as a D&D player in the 80s as any book I read, even if it was nominally space fiction. Aliens, Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters, so many more fed the imagination of our generation and in turn influenced the games we ran. In a lot of ways, things have come full circle. Many of the creatives behind the movies of today were the nerdy gamer kids of yesterday. Take a look at Guardians of the Galaxy. If that ensemble isn't the epitome of a D&D party, I don't know what is. You can find the threads of the influence of D&D in almost every modern piece of fantastical entertainment, which in turn influences the gamers that are out there playing pen and paper RPGs today. When the D&D movie trailer dropped, <laughs> one of the funniest complaints I heard about it is, oh, they're just... They're just imitating Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> and I just had to laugh so hard. Yeah. What's really funny, too, is when we're talking about the tropes kind of getting, like, put in a blender and getting recycled into other things. One of the things that I was thinking about the other day is that Ghostbusters is what actually introduced me to a whole bunch of Lovecraft style <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't realize when I watched that as a kid, it's like, oh, this is actually a Lovecraft kind of comedy. Like, this is all based on, like, cosmic horror and, like, science-based horror and things like that. And I never realized it when I watched that as a kid. And then when I got older and start, you know, actually looking into some of these, uh, you know, mythos-type stories, I was like, oh, that's where all this came from. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. It, I love looking at how these different things interconnect as a gm i'm a huge fan of genre mm -hmm. and staying true to the genre of a game but when you start digging in and see the tropes that come from different places it's like it, it's all it's all throw it all in a blender yeah throw it all in a blender just figure out the important bits to stay true to to keep the genre of your game feeling true and since you spent time mentioning video games i was going to point out i think one of the most actionable things that I think someone can do if you don't play it, at least like go online and watch some some playthroughs of it. But watch some Zelda games if you want to come up with some really interesting dungeon design, because the Zelda games from the beginning that I mean, that wasn't long after I started playing D&D &D that, you know, I got my NES and was playing Zelda and Every version of the Zelda franchise has had some really interesting dungeon design. It has puzzles, but it doesn't have puzzles that feel like you have to be in a completely different mindset. It's more like, okay, I got this tool. One of these tools has to work to fix this puzzle. There's just so much good design in how Zelda games build out their dungeons and their challenges. Do you have anything in your recent gaming history that has been influenced by the media that you have consumed? A little while back, when I was running my uh, Tales of the Old Margrave game, we had a character who was playing an orphan that was adopted by Baba Yaga, and she was a warlock, you know, with Baba Yaga as her patron. And a lot of how I was viewing her relationship with Baba Yaga was kind of how Flemeth in the Dragon Age stories and video games interacted with Morrigan, and how there was kind of like this idea that. Someday, Flemeth 
might be gone and Morrigan might basically move into that title of Flemeth so that there is always a Flemeth that existed. This isn't super radical because Flemeth is pretty much based on <laughs> Baba Yaga. But it was just it was something that was definitely on my mind as I was uh, running that game. This is from a player side, but I had an orc bard in an Eberron game that I basically was Belloc if he got a redemption arc. <laughs> basically, I just, he was just an archaeologist that worked for some shady people during the uh, last war and he didn't get his face melted off by looking at a religious artifact, so he had the opportunity to uh, <laughs> to do some soul searching afterwards. And the current game that I'm running, I can't give away too much, but some of the planning when I first started thinking about what I wanted to do in this campaign was kind of inspired by the Three Musketeers and the idea that there would be a Cardinal Richelieu type character and that he was going to have his own kind of red guards that would be the foils for the uh, the player characters. And you've kind of run into them before so far in the, in this game, but, you know, not quite the full blossoming of what I was thinking when we originally started that, but that was definitely on my mind as I was planning the campaign to begin with. So what have you let seep into your games, Ange? So I have to confess that I have ripped off part of the plot of Stardust twice. It's a good movie, though. Yeah, it really is. And that inciting driving incident behind the story is just so good for a D&D game. Basically, it's the whole idea of having to find a magical thing that's responsible for choosing the next ruler of the kingdom. That's a quest! I originally used it years ago when I was still a relatively new GM, and I was doing a two-table adventure where I was running one table, uh, my buddy Tristan was running the other table. They were both rival adventuring parties that had been hired by two separate heirs to the throne who wanted to find the artifact first. And we did a little bit too good of a job of setting up the rivalry between these parties, because when they finally met in the middle, they immediately started fighting each other and ended up ignoring the blue dragon whose lair it was. And I think the only person who actually succeeded in their goals was the person who was playing the plant. <laughs> there was a spy from a third potential heir who had planted him in one of the adventuring parties to find it for her. And like, he was able to get his hands on it and just hightail <laughs> it out of there. More recently, I put together a 5e one-shot that I've brought to a few cons called The Lost Star of Windover. And basically, it's a party racing against time to find the artifact that will choose the next heir of the kingdom before the exiled prince who tried to murder his mother finds it and steals the throne. It's just a too good of a concept not to use. <laughs> in general, I, I treat, you know, like you were talking about a blender before. It's like I treat the vast array of fantasy stuff in my head as fodder and inspiration, and I just pull from wherever when appropriate. So it can be sometimes a little hard to pinpoint exactly where the origins of an idea might have come from. I mean, if you pull on the threads of the ideas hard enough, you'll find out where they originated, but there's just, I mean, I'm old. There's a lot in my head. <laughs> it's like I will pull on ideas all day long. There are times when it just strikes me like, wait a minute, I got that from from this story. And I don't even realize for the longest time where it came from. Then I suddenly remember, oh, yeah, that's right. And then there's like the Ghostbusters moment, like I was explaining before, where I realized that this trope that I thought was from one thing was actually from something way before that. 
you gotta pull up an NPC on the fly, and like hours after the game is over, you'll realize that that NPC was totally ripping off another character. <laughs> Although I do have to say that Madison with two N's and a Y, <laughs> not where you think, is exactly what I envisioned for an NPC I made up on the fly years ago. Oh, God. That was awesome. Well, and the funny thing is, when you bring up Stardust, for the longest time, as far as just a general swashbuckling type movie that I loved, I didn't think anything would quite get that close to, to my love of Princess Bride, but I honestly think Stardust is right up there with it. Stardust is really good. Yeah. I it didn't get the attention it deserved. No, definitely not. If you want to see Charlie Cox before he was fantastic as Matt Murdock, Daredevil, <laughs> go watch Stardust. I think that was his first starring role. And also, you get to see Daredevil sword fighting with Superman. <laughs> <laughs> because Henry Cavill's in there, too. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a fantastic movie go watch it if you haven't it, it really is and i was gonna say as another one of those actionable things if you're ever wondering what kind of quirks to give your npcs and not talking about trying to do funny voices or anything like that just coming up with personality traits or callbacks certain things that they can hit over and over again stardust has so many good characters that you can pull personality traits from all of the siblings that were killing each other are just wonderful I just love them. <laughs> um, Mark Strong played such a good villain in that. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's witch and the, you know, her sisters. I mean, that would be like a brilliant hags coven right there. Yeah. It's oh God. There's so much good in that movie. <laughs> Definitely go check it out if you haven't. But needless to say, there is a lot that could go into a modern appendix end. Oh, yeah. The funny thing is, this entire episode has kind of been us recommending things. And now we're going to go into our formal downtime research segment where we formally recommend, recommend things. things. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. So every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we wanted to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So, Ange, what do you have for us this episode? So this isn't anything new. But since we're talking about Appendix N and a bit of the origins of D&D, I wanted to give a shout out to Shannon Applecline's Designers and Dragons, published by Evil Hat, and it's totally nonfiction. It takes a comprehensive and deep dive look at the business side of role-playing games. There's four volumes broken down by decade, but what he does is he will take companies that started in that decade and then follow their story until it ends. And of course, if it hasn't ended yet, it just goes to modern age. But it each one starts in the decade where they got started. And like TSR's journey is in the 1970s book. And then he picks up with Wizards of the Coast. I don't remember if he does Wizards in the 90s book or the 2000s book. I think it's the 90s one. 90s book would make sense because they did get their start doing magic. Mm. Either way, it's the book is a fascinating read and a really interesting look into the business side of the hobby and how stuff has worked and interwoven and changed over the years. I am very excited for when he comes out with the next version, which will cover <laughs> the 2010s. 
but that's obviously a huge undertaking to document considering the way the hobby has been. And he's going to have to do it in a slightly different way since he can't go back and necessarily edit <laughs> the previous volumes to continue Wizard's story. But we'll have a link to Drive Through RPG where you can get the whole bundle as PDFs and read it. You know, and you can even go through and just read about the companies you're interested in. I really enjoyed reading through that. Yeah, it's kind of neat because at the end of the chapters, they actually go through the thing where, like, if you want to see another uh, company that specialized in fantasy games, look up this one. Or, you know, yeah. there's actually suggestions in there if you don't just want to read it straight through cover to cover. The other thing that's neat is the 70s and the 80s have both been made into audiobooks so far. So I'm hoping the other two volumes will get made into uh, audiobooks in the near future. Because I've read through all of them and listened to them <laughs> over again. <laughs> the 2000s one is interesting because while you have the, the D20 boom, which dominated the hobby, you also had the chaos that was happening in the indie design community, which you can tell when he starts writing about it. He, you know, he obviously just probably had a moment. Like, I have no idea how to cover this. OK, let's just get started. Oh, yeah, because that's when you start having people just self-publishing things. And it wasn't about like a traditional business model. It is somebody posts a PDF somewhere and it just, you know, like explodes with people talking about it and passing it on and things like that. Like, And how do you talk about the Power by the Apocalypse books? Because like that's not a single company. That is. Oh, no. <laughs> one group of folks made a game and said, yeah, you can use this engine if you want. It is a great read. It really is. My suggestion this time around, because we touched on how the original Appendix N had some of their nonfiction uh, books that were very much from a Western European standpoint, I thought I would recommend something, which is Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. Her translation of the Odyssey is really interesting. It's got a lot more nuance to it than other translations have. She's very particular in some of the words that she uses to explain things. One of the things that she goes into is a lot of the traditional translations of the Odyssey have referred to Odysseus's people that worked for him at his manor as servants. And she makes it very clear they were slaves. That changes your perspective when things happen like the people that would come in and associate with all of the suitors and then Odysseus comes home and kills all of those servants, if somebody was a guest of the manor, they had to associate with them however they were interacted with. So that's kind of showing Odysseus in this light that is less heroic than we traditionally see. And she goes into a lot of how we kind of lionize Odysseus. And the story is really not showing that Odysseus is this big hero. It's showing that Odysseus is really good at being what he needs to be on each of the places that he visits. And that maybe some of the things that Odysseus is isn't necessarily a hero. It's that he's good at playing up the aspects of himself that people want to hear. There's all sorts of really neat nuance in there. And I really do recommend this. But specifically, look for the Emily Wilson translation of the Odyssey. So we've used up all our resources. So I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We'll hope you go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.